On the podcast for this week, we persist in our discussion of Islamism and uh, its works and evil and punitive ways and where it comes from and what to do about it. Last week, we spoke with Scott Appleby, one of the founders of the Fundamentalism Project at the University of Chicago some years ago. My guest on this session is one of the leading students of, I would say, modern Islamic life, and most particularly about its transformation into an abrasive, aggressive, and destructive politics uh, in the form of Islamism, or if you will, um, Muslim terrorism, or what have you. I am speaking of Daniel Pipes, who is well known to any who follow these matters at all as just such a scholar. He is these days uh, the head of his own um, research institute called the Middle East Forum, which was uh, founded back in 1994, uh, based in Philadelphia. Um, his academic history uh, in some ways parallels mine, though it comes much later than mine. But you were, of course, uh, at the faculty, on the faculty at the University of Chicago. When you arrived, uh, Daniel, I was already ensconced in the psychology department. Indeed. And uh, we belonged to some discussion groups together. You were there for about three or four years, then back to Harvard, from which you had your own PhD in Islamic history. And I've never been on the full faculty at Harvard, but I've lectured there a number of times. Then you went on to one of my favorite academic institutions where I uh, spent um, uh, a summer or so doing faculty work and research, namely the Naval War College up in uh, Rhode Island. Um, and in all of those places, you have been pursuing Islam, as well as, of course, pursuing Islam in the Middle East. You lived for some three years or so. Were you still a Ph.D.-seeking graduate student in Egypt? Yes, I was a student. And you picked, that's where you got your Arabic, among other things, that's I'm sure. Right. Right. Uh, we come then to what is, of course, the topic, as it was last week, but now uh, with yet uh, another view and another informant in mind. With ISIS and its vile homicidal depredations uh, in mind, uh, the most recent being that horrible, a horrifying image of the 21 Christians being led to the seaside where they were about to be decapitated, uh, but with in mind as well something as early as the killing of over 200 American Marines in uh, Beirut, the 9-11 horror in New York, the London and Madrid uh, public transportation bombings which killed uh, scores, uh, the deadly attacks on synagogues, on Eastern Rite Christian churches, and even on mosques, though usually they are Shiite rather than Sunni mosques. That's the realm into which we venture. But we can't possibly even list all of the depredations that have been done by the outfit that now calls itself ISIS. All the same, let's focus in on them. Are they, in fact, merely another name for what was uh, not long ago referred to as al-Qaeda uh, in Iraq? The uh, origins of ISIS lie in al-Qaeda, but it has a quite distinct approach. Al-Qaeda has focused on attacking Westerners, and ISIS has focused on acquiring territory in Muslim-majority areas, in particular Syria and Iraq, but also now Libya. Uh, I think the ISIS approach is a more sensible one, in part because they're actually governing territory and in charge of something. 
and in part because I see terrorism as counterproductive. But they are engaged in terrorism at the same time, not only... Well, when uh, it gets into definitions. Well, let's uh, do that. By all means, that is... Indeed, you did a paper I saw recently in which you struggle with the fact that there are so many ways to define terrorism that a lack of a standard definition produces a problem in itself. Maybe I should put it differently, that instead of getting into this highly technical discussion of what constitutes terrorism, um, ISIS is seeking to control territory. Al-Qaeda is seeking to attack Westerners in their homelands. And I see the latter as counterproductive. I don't think ISIS is going to do very well either, but it is a more sensible strategy to take control of territory. That is historically how you get somewhere, not by swooping in and driving airplanes into buildings and other such. But in the process, as they go get into territory, and of course they are now established in a good piece of Iraq and a good piece of Syria, and they're calling that the Islamic State, they do a lot of killing once they arrive. Yeah, uh, they definitely are uh, violent, and, and, and not just violent, but they have a knack for the atrocity. Uh, it's one thing to kill 21 people, it's another one to do it the way you just described. It's yeah. just horrifying, beyond even the deaths. Uh, but, you know, on the larger scale of things, if one puts aside the atrocity, the, the horrificness of it, actually the number of deaths by global standards are fairly modest. Uh, the 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 ISIS, the Islamic State, now controls an area roughly the size of Great Britain. Of course, has far fewer people. However, they're doing a very bad job of governing it. Merely getting access to clean water and food has become traumatic for the residents of cities like Raqqa and Mosul, which are the major cities under ISIS. But staying with the killing that they do for a moment, the killing of so many different sectors of the, the conquered population, uh, are they actually uh, grabbing Christian kids and burying them, sometimes burying them alive? Uh, I don't know that specifically, but I wouldn't put it past them. The, the point is they are masters at finding the most horrifying methods. Yes, well, we've seen all of those uh, executions and, on television where they've taken and, American prisoners and literally cut their throats while we are watching. And one has to ask, why are they doing this? And uh, clearly they are antagonizing states and uh, powerful bodies around the world. I mean, for example, Egyptians are outraged by what happened yes. recently in Libya. And now they have the Egyptian state pummeling them in, in Libya. So why are they doing this when it is so uh, it creates such hostility? Well, that comes to the very question that I was pressing last week. The uh, podcast I did last week with Scott Appleby, and yours is uh, following directly thereupon, was titled Murder Most Foul. Is the homicidal strategy of ISIS of theological or, quote, practical origin? That is, are they doing it because somehow their variant of Islam, and I know that you take, uh, in general, the terrorist or the Islamist variant of Islam to be unfaithful to uh, the best and true meaning of historic Islam, is their variant of Islam, uh, in fact, so construed theologically that they are required to do this kind of murder of um, heathens and of uh, those who have failed in the faith? Or is it a rather workable way of intimidating the possible opposition? It's a good question, but let me first dispute your your assumption about me. No, I see the Islamist movement in general, ISIS in particular, is extremely Islamic. I don't, for a moment, in any question, or I thought you were 
saying I don't. Uh, they're, they're very Islamic. Uh, they're very extreme and they're bizarre and wild, but they are hoping to replicate uh, the ways of Muhammad in 1400 years ago. And in this, they are truly Islamic. Uh, a good question, whether it is theologically or practically minded. I think it's a mix of the two. They they are emulating their prophet, and at the same time, they see this as a way to inspire Muslims to join them, to inspire Sunni Muslims to join them, and they are certainly having some sex. Okay? Have they have they also succeeded, for example, in inhibiting uh, the uh, uh, members of the? Royal Jordanian Air Force from flying missions against them? Uh, to the contrary. The burning of a pilot of the Jordanian Air Force led to a far greater campaign mm-hmm. by the Jordanian state against them. They did briefly get the United Arab Emirates Air Force to stop. But in general, as just mentioned, the Egyptian Air Force and now the Jordanian Air Force, they're getting powerful states to become their inimical uh, enemies and it's not working in other words the tactic that's not working yes they are winning over say belgian uh teenagers who surreptitiously go off to turkey and then to syria but that isn't a very good tactic because they're creating this intense hostility by states the united states government is attacking them the egyptian the uae the Jordanian. Uh, one of these days, the Israelis might join in. Uh, who knows? Uh, the Saudis uh, might join in. Let us return to the crucial question of the relation of Islamism or of radical Islam, or call it what you will, and you've used all of the uh, appropriate terms, whether or rather how it is related to historic Islam. I quote you, and by the way, I've just today read the piece in the current. Harvard Magazine, maybe the very current issue, I'm not sure, about you. Uh, and I, they quote you as saying, quote, militant Islam is the problem and moderate Islam the solution. Um, of course, Islamism derives from Islam, uh, but uh, has it only emerged in recent time or has it had well, variants, births and rebirths over the, the last six or seven hundred years? The origins lie way back in the or in the beginnings of Islam. The Harijite movement, Ibn Taymiyyah in the 13th century, the Wahhabi movement in the mid-18th century, these are all very stringent versions of Islam yes. uh, that supply intellectual bases. But the modern movement dates quite specifically from the 1920s. And not coincidentally, 1920s was a time when totalitarianism emerged. Mussolini, uh, uh, Lenin, and eventually Hitler. Uh, this was a time when a new idea became available, that the state can run things, and that the ideological goal of the state trumps any individual liberties, or aspirations. And Muslims in places like Egypt, Iran, and India uh, caught on to these ideas and applied them to their own culture. 
What you just said rather reminds me of Mussolini's definition of fascism, where he made a tantamount to or equal to what he called syndicalism. And the individual had to submit to larger syndicates which governed his sector of work or his sector of geographically or what have you, but had to consider himself a part of the whole or he was nothing at all. Mm-hmm. The emphasis is on the state, the power of the state, global ambitions, and that's what the Islamists are. So it is a movement that is close to 100 years old. It took decades for it to reach power in uh, Iran in uh, 1979. It has since reached power in other uh, countries. Uh, it is a formidable force. It is arguably the only alive, vital, threatening, ideological radical utopian force in the world today. It is akin to communism and fascism, but those are both marginal phenomena at this time compared to Islamism. It is inevitably likely that I would sooner or later uh, draw a parallel between you and your father. Uh, Richard Pipes uh, was one of the leading scholars of Soviet communism, and of course one of the leading critics, and he uh, took time off from the Harvard faculty to occasionally render strong service in Washington uh, during uh, some of the peak years of the Cold War. In a way, you are um, rendering similar service with regard to the one last uh, combative ideology left for us to face. That's what you're saying. Well, uh, I would, but not not necessarily say it's the last one. It's the next one. They keep keep coming, do they? Uh, This one is... uh, Bit of a surprise. I remember when the, the Fukuyama article came out. Yes, the and, end of history. Yeah, and I, my response to it was, say, wait a minute, there's still one more of these that you're not paying attention to. Uh, back in the early 90s, it didn't quite seem so important as it does today, but um, he, he just ignored it. Uh, I don't know where the next one might come from, but I would worry that there are more radical utopian ideologies on their way. A better book by far than Fukuyama's came from your alma mater uh, from Harvard and one of its leading faculty, Sam Huntington of the Political Science Department, who really laid out the view of the uh, the clash of civilizations. And in that very important book, must be about 15 years old by now, um, he said two great uh, confrontations between civilizations are coming. One was between the West and China, or between the West and Asia, led by China. The other was between the West and uh, uh, essentially Islam and the nations uh, uh, of the Islamic Middle East and elsewhere. Uh, That's the one that seems to have come first. I don't know whether Sam, if he were around, would still predict that China's on the horizon as well. But he certainly had it right about Islam, didn't he? Well, I have to confess I don't agree with this thesis. Um, in part, I disagree because I find that there are plenty of Muslims who are on our side, and there are plenty of Westerners who are on their side. Take, for example, the Rushdie affair, which dates back to then, 1989, one of the first of such confrontations. Mm-hmm. At first, it looked like all the Muslims were aligned with Khomeini, and it looked like the Westerners were aligned with Salman Rushdie, the novelist. Yeah. Well, if you look closer you see that there were many important figures in the West who had no time for Rushdie, who, while they didn't endorse the death sentence against him, found him at fault for blaspheming Islam. And there were plenty of Muslims, including ones in Iran itself, who uh, came to Rushdie's defense and 
grounds of freedom of expression and the like. Yeah. You know, and then, you find that to this day, if you if you look at any of the recent attacks and freedom of expression and so forth, you'll see again, it doesn't fall exactly along civilizational lines. It has to do with politics. It has to do with what your views are, not what your religion is. No, there are certainly broad uh, strokes. If you look just very generally, you can say that. But if you look specifically, it doesn't. Secondly, um, Huntington confused essence with transition. In other words, he would find some small thing and say, aha, this is a clash of civilizations. Notably, 20, 25 years ago, there were severe tensions between the United States and Japan. And there were not severe tensions between the United States and Europe. Well, a decade or so later, say 2006, it was quite the reverse. Major tensions with Europe over Iraq and other issues. No tensions whatsoever with Japan. He ascribed those tensions 20 years ago to to clash of civilizations. They were not. They had to do with trade policy and currency valuations and other transient things like that. I think it's a mistake to ascribe that to some larger clash of civilizations. So, no, I'm, I'm not an advocate of that point of view. It's interesting that you mentioned Salman Rushdie. I'll tell you a little personal story, try to do it quickly. Um, years ago, uh, I was approached by publishers who said, you can have Salman Rushdie on your radio program if you promise not to tell anybody that he's coming. And I said, of course I promise. And so we didn't announce it in advance, but one night... Uh, there was Salman Rushdie. Uh, some guards were there, and it was all rather tense. I found him a charming and very interesting man. Um, the next day at the University of Chicago, literally in um, the Quadrangle Club, the faculty club that you know, um, a friend uh, came up to me and said, you are crazy. I said, why? He said, well, you're running a real risk by having Rushdie on your program. Uh, they're going after all of his associates, and you don't have FBI or anybody else protecting you. Um, there was a sense, I wish I could say this was a member of the Middle East Studies faculty, but it wasn't. But there was a sense generally in those days that these were people of tremendous evil potency, and one had to be very wary of them. Well, and rightly so. Uh, there was a murder just some days ago in Copenhagen, an yes. event celebrating the freedom of speech. Uh, They're trying to it, kill one of the cartoonists, but they yeah. got someone else instead, yes. Yeah, it is, not, uh, it is not something to trifle with. However, it is something that we should make very clear, we as Westerners, that we have our ways. We have freedom of speech, freedom to blasphemy, and uh, you better accept this. By the way, with regard to the attack in Copenhagen or the event of two weeks before the events in Paris, does one view those as organizationally commanded as part of a more general plan or rather as individual improvisations by uh, people who are a bit off their rocker and terribly angry? Well, what, what Ayatollah Khomeini started in 1989 was an Islamist demand of Westerners to obey Islamic precepts of Rushdie and then subsequently of others. And what he did, and then what subsequently, subsequently Al-Qaeda did, was to establish that these are blasphemers who should not be allowed to live. And then it is up to individuals to go and uh, execute the orders from on high. 
It is not planned. It is not some large international organization that is working out the details. It is rather uh, inspiration coming from Khomeini or Al-Qaeda or ISIS. And it is individuals, often of their own quiet individual volition, who take the steps to engage in violence. Would that be true even of something more ambitious? I think, for example, <clears throat> of the attack on the British uh, metro uh, or underground and uh, the buses uh, way back many years ago in London. Uh, some 55 people were killed. Are we to assume all the same? That was done by three or four uh, British-born Muslims. Or should we assume that they were acting on their own, as it were, but in conjunction with uh, what they took to be the general command of Islam? In that case, though, I, if memory serves, there was also more of a connection. Uh, one or two of them went to Pakistan, uh -huh. and they did have more of an operational control. But uh, it doesn't really make much difference if there is an operational control or simply an inspiration. The fact is that there are significant numbers of Islamists who in the West or other parts of the world are ready to use violence to achieve their goals. And I would argue, and strenuously argue, that their activities are deeply counterproductive to their goals. Are they chided by the leadership of the, of the great organizations, or are they simply ignored? They are inspired by al-Qaeda and the like, but I, I think... Not rewarded by al-Qaeda? No. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think in other words, if I were an Islamist strategist, if I were giving advice to them, I would say stay away from violence. Mm -hmm. Violence is uh, your enemy. Violence causes people to be alarmed and hostile, whereas if you work quietly through the institutions, if you work through the schools and the law courts and the media and the political process, and don't engage in violence and don't engage in criminality, but work the system, you can achieve far more. Uh, well, that brings us to a very fascinating and persisting question, or set of questions, having to do with Islam, organized Islam, in the non um, Islamic world. That is particularly in the West. Um, we know that uh, Europe has a very large proportion of resident Muslims. It varies from country to country, but some demographers have estimated that Italy may turn out to be virtually a, an Islamic majority country by the middle of this century. Uh, we have a smaller number, but still Islam is well established here, and we are very polite to them. Um, our president is particularly polite to them and can't speak of Islamic terrorism ever, even though at the moment he's presiding over a meeting on terrorism at the White House. Uh, at the moment, I mean the very day that we're recording this conversation. Uh, well, you brought up a couple of different points. Take it wherever you want to go with it. Um, there is a great reluctance to acknowledge the Islamist element in violence. The conference you're referring to is about violent extremism, yes. a generic term. Uh, I think there are re good reasons for this reluctance. I, I, I criticize it. I'm against it. But I, I think I understand it. One reason is a sense that Muslims will be riled up and um, upset and maybe turn to violence if one mentions Islam and therefore finds generic terms that do not focus on Islam, 
even though everyone knows that's what one's talking about. And secondly, there's a sense that if you talk about Islam in any fashion, jihad, Islamism, anything at all, that that sets into motion a series of shifts and changes that require fundamental changes to the way we do business in this country. For example, take something that many people have experienced, getting on an airplane. It is far easier to look for weapons than it is to look at the individuals getting on the plane, mm -hmm. even though everyone knows that simply looking for weapons is something of what they call security theater. It's not very serious. But if you're going to start asking people questions and inquiring into their motives and uh, looking at who's friendly with whom, uh, you make travel on airplanes a very different experience from what it is today. And you change the terms of American life, and people are reluctant to do that. Of course, we do have in all major American cities, and surely in all major European cities, uh, well-established mosques, some of which seem to have been um, moved rather significantly or strenuously in the Islamist direction, in that from those same mosques come particular operators who uh, do violence in public and uh, or go to the Middle East and uh, render considerable assistance to uh, whatever is the regnant Islamic force, these days ISIS or ISIL. Um, a few um, people who were important imams in London have uh, gone that whole life course, and one of them at least has now been imprisoned. Uh, what is the situation in the United States with regard to um, the Muslim uh, portion of our population? By the way, speaking demographically, how many Muslims uh, are in this very country? I would say 1% of the population, somewhere in the order of 3 million. As for mosques, uh, they have, to a fairly considerable extent, cleaned up their act. They're penetrated. They're being watched. The freedom they had before 9-11 is now gone. And if you're up to uh, mischief, you're probably not going to do it in a mosque. Are you put off by the president's and his administration's reluctance to speak critically of something called Islam, or, to, or of Islamic terrorism, rather. Uh, yes, to name it course. something else rather than Islamic. Of course. I mean, he, Obama, Cameron, uh, Hollande of France, all said in various iterations that ISIS is not Islamic. My favorite version was Howard Dean, the former oh, yes. governor of Vermont, who said rather flamboyantly, that ISIS is about as Islamic as I am. Yeah. Uh, of course I criticize it, but you know what? I don't really I would say they match him in one thing, stupidity. <laughs> I don't think it's very important. I think the message is loud and clear. I think everyone, including these people who are reiterating this pablum, is quite aware that uh, ISIS or the other Islamist groups are Islamic, that they're acting on behalf of their understanding of Islam. There's no controversy about that. And the message is getting through. And that's why I say that the, these acts of violence are so counterproductive to the Islamist message, to the Islamist movement, because it causes consternation, fear, alienation, hostility. There's much more 
resistance to Islamism than there was, say, 20 years ago. Yeah, there are many who uh, read your very frequent articles uh, in the National Review, uh, in the journal of your own organization, uh, that organization being the Middle East Forum. And uh, the uh, let's see, there is the Middle East Quarterly, which is published by your organization, also right. Campus Watch, a valuable, and then there's sort of the daily uh, uh, the, the daily uh, feature on the internet uh, for which you do a lot of columns. There are many who read you and have also read your books. I think you've got over 10 of them by now, have you not? Yes. Um, who at the same time wonder whether you've got the numbers right. Uh, you have said, uh, you've estimated that when it comes to total uh, uh, Muslims in the world, perhaps 10% favor Islamism and resonate positively to its destructive achievements. But uh, others think you've underestimated that. And one kind of ev- one evidence of that is that we get very little strong objection and strong condemnation from resident um, is, uh, Muslims in America when some great horror has been done in the name of Islam. But in fact, expressive of Islamism. I said ten to fifteen percent. Yeah. Uh, the the devil is in the detail. What does one mean by an Islamist? Is it someone who supports Al Qaeda? Is it someone who wants the laws of Islam to be applied to him and to everyone else? Is it someone who endorses the Hadood, the Islamic punishment, such as cutting off of hands? Is it? Is it yeah. There, there's so many different ways to define it. So, uh, I. I offered this some time ago as a very broad generalization, and I I think it's as good a generalization as one can find. I can point to many pieces of evidence that would suggest otherwise. For example, in Turkey, the uh, Islamist party gets 50% of the vote. Uh Uh-huh. But then I would say, well, it's not clear that all of them are themselves Islamist. It's not clear that they want the full program applied. They might be voting for this party for other reasons, and so forth. So, and of course, in different times and different places, you have different numbers. Um, I offer this as a rule of thumb. I'm not wedded to it, but I don't really know that there's a better number. Is 25% better? I... I'm skeptical. Well, the the fact that needs accounting is the one I I think is the one I mentioned before, that when some minor transgression, some minor uh, public crime has been done, uh, like, for example, what we saw with those 21 uh, Egyptian Christians who were marched uh, to the seaside to be beheaded, uh, that we don't hear much from resident uh, Muslims. Uh, I didn't see 10 uh, imams stand up and rush to commercial television, or rather to uh, uh, to uh, cable television, to denounce that undertaking. I agree with your point, but that doesn't necessarily make them Islamist because they didn't rush to television. What, inhib- what inhibits them then? Well, uh, there, there can be other reasons. Uh, for example, we, there is a widespread resentment among Muslims to have to denounce every act of violence by yeah. Islamists. They feel, well, why, why are we being called upon time and again to do this? And isn't isn't enough to have done it in the past? We have to do this each time. Uh, there is a sense of uh, intimidation. The Islamists are strong and violent, 
and it takes courage to stand up to them. Um, you mean they might take retribution to say even on the American scene, or against your relatives in another country? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So it takes uh, takes some gumption. It could be that you want to avoid the whole subject. So I, I'm not apologizing for it. I think they should, but. I don't necessarily conclude that every imam who doesn't go out in public and denounce it is necessarily an Islamist. Uh, Mark Stein, in his book America Alone, some years ago now, estimated that essentially Europe was going to uh, be taken over by um, Muslim culture and in large part by Muslim populations, just on the basis of what the immigration data showed at that time and the fact that uh, Muslims were far more given to large families than were uh, Europeans, um, so that the actual um, uh, rate of, bir- of birth to death in uh, Italy, for example, was 1.2, whereas 2.1 is necessary to simply reach replacement level, as many uh, births as deaths. Um, we might well be in that same situation, but for the vast special uh, immigration of um, Latin Americans, particularly of Mexicans. Uh, are we likely to look, at, if not at a clash of civilizations, at a, an alteration of civilization, in that the West will become far more visibly Muslim and thus far more indulgent, necessarily, of Islam, its precepts, and its culture? Ooh, many, many points there. First, let me just correct your, your statistics. He's talking about total fertility rate, which has nothing to do with deaths. It has only to do with births per woman. Yes. So you need That's births per women. Per yeah, and you need 2.1 to have re- uh, to reach a replacement rate. Yes. it's about 1.4, 1.5. It varies, it varies. Uh, yeah, it does vary. Uh, secondly, the great reservoir of Muslim population is less the children born to Muslims in the West and much more Muslims around the world, total over a billion. Uh-huh. Uh, third, uh, he, Stein is not alone in his assessment that Europe is finished. Uh, there are other notable figures such as Oriana Falacci and Bacior who have come to yes. this conclusion. I disagree. I think that to extrapolate out from the past decades to the future ones is a mistake, because what they're ignoring is the fact that there is a major shift in European opinion, and one finds that Europeans are increasingly upset about the rise of Islam and Islamism and Sharia and the like, and are increasingly responding to it. What are they they doing about it? Well, they're voting. let me give you one example in yeah. Sweden, which is perhaps the country that is most extreme in its uh, acceptance of Muslim immigrants and rejection of any kind of criticism of the very substantial numbers. It's about yes, and we, we know that a cap, what, the European capital of, anti, of anti-Semitism now is probably Malmo in Sweden. Right. It's more than 1% a year, yeah. which adds up quickly. Well, in Sweden which is this hotbed of political correctness, in 2002, the one party that rejects immigration, that wants to reduce immigration by 90%, got a measly 1.3% 
of the national vote, parliamentary vote. Four years later, in 2006, it more than doubled that to 3%. Four years later, in 2010, it doubled that to 6%. Four years later, in 2014, it more than doubled that to 13%. A few months after the 2014 elections, the polls show something in the order of 17 18%. So you're seeing a doubling every two years of the anti-immigrant, in effect, anti-Islamic vote. Yeah, we see, we see something quite similar in France, don't we? Uh, we see something all over the place. So what Stein and the others did not pay attention to enough is that there is this reaction taking place. Something else that contradicts Stein most particularly is um, the actual um, change in birth rate. If you go to the banlieue of Paris, you don't get five or six kids per family anymore, do you? That's right. Immigrant population rates go way down. And furthermore, what's also important is if you look at the larger Muslim majority, the larger population in Muslim majority countries, you see that the population rates there are going crashing down. Iran, for example, has had the most severe population decline of any country ever recorded. Uh, Egypt is barely a replacement. Tunisia is below, Turkey is below, and so forth. So the robust Muslim population rates of recent decades are are over, basically. There's still some outliers like Yemen and Afghanistan, uh, West Bank, Gaza, but they're, even there one is finding a reduction in numbers. And by the way, mentioning uh, West Bank and Gaza, the only Western population the only Western population that has an increasing birth rate is the Israeli yes. Jewish one, which is now well above replacement. It's something on the order of 2.7 children per woman. Uh, I'm very tempted to go directly into that. I want to, do want to talk with you about Israel, but let me give you something else first, a quotation. Here is a, a statement of uh, the call to ultimate uh, Islamic, uh, Islamist uh, assertiveness and victory. Uh, this is, I, I'll give you, the, it was by Ahmed Yassin. I'll let you in a moment explain who he is. But he says, Sons of Islam everywhere, the jihad is a duty to establish the rule of Allah on earth and to liberate your countries and yourselves from America's domination and its Zionist allies. It is your battle, either victory or martyrdom. Now that's a call to uh, worldwide Sharia, achieved as much by killing off the enemy as anything else. Mm-hmm. Right. He's the founder of Hamas. The founder of Hamas. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't speak for himself alone or for his organization alone. No, it's a common Islamist uh, proclamation. Uh, it's just routine. Is it not also somehow built into the, the Velton showing, it's not a word they would use, of the new uh, entity, uh, ISIS? Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. But we don't take it seriously, or should no, not? No, I mean, it's very serious, but it, it, it's not distinct to Hamas or yeah. ISIS or Muslim Brotherhood or any of the other... But, but you don't think it can be, pull, you don't think it can be, can be pulled off. Isn't there a model, though, in the original spread of Islam? We're told, it's a cliche of history, you learn it in high school, that Islam was spread by the sword. There's something to that, is there not? By and large, Islam was spread by the sword. But two two points. One is that Muslim conquerors gained territory. They did not then force populations to convert to Islam. They created a 
context in which it was advantageous to convert to Islam. And indeed, there are cases in history when rulers did not want their populations, mm-hmm. subject populations, to convert, because then they, had, uh, they lost the higher taxation rate that the non-Muslims paid. So it was not actually uh, forcible conversion. It was, crea- it was having Muslim rule, and in that circumstance, it became advantageous to convert to Islam. Secondly, there are parts of the world, in particular in Southeast Asia, where Islam spread through merchants and not through the sword. Um, I think, though, of the, the rules of demitude. Can you explain that quickly? What is a dimi? A dimi is a, uh, essentially a Christian or Jew, or a Sabaean, but we're not quite sure who Sabaeans are. Mm-hmm. Christians are Jews who are people of the book, who have a Bible that is somewhat analogous to the Quran and is accepted by Islam as a, an inferior version of the Quranic message. In other words, God sent down a series of prophets, including um, Moses and Jesus, and they didn't get it quite right. And so Jews and Christians have the essence of the idea of monotheism, but don't have it quite right. And then came Muhammad, the seal of the prophets, the final prophet who got it perfectly right. So Jews and Christians are accepted to continue with their faith under Islamic rule. They face all sorts of um, restrictions and um, prejudice against them, but they're allowed to continue their faith. In contrast, say, Hindus are not. Yet, in fact, when the Muslims conquered India, there's so many Hindus, they could not do anything but accept them as a kind of honorary people of the book. They didn't have as high a status, uh, but they didn't. They were, in effect, accepted. And another interesting contrast is to is between the Jews of the Muslim majority, Muslim ruled countries, and the Jews of Europe. In the Muslim countries, Jews had an accepted place, inferior to be sure, but it was accepted. Whereas Jews in Christian Europe, by and large, did not have an accepted place. They didn't fit. There was no context for them. And so, historically, it's probably safe to say that the Jews under Muslim rule had a better existence than Jews under Christian rule. I have an odd personal memory of that. I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn in a neighborhood called Bensonhurst. Uh, The next-door neighborhood is Borough Park. When I was a kid, and that was a long, long time ago, there were Syrian Jews. They had their own synagogue quite close to the uh, the public school I went to, Uh, and uh, one would occasionally hear Arabic as mothers called their sons uh, home directly after school, and we didn't know what to make of it. It became sort of a running gag among most of the Jewish kids at PS205, or at Seth Lowe Junior High School, because there were these Syrian Jews among, the, among us. We were told they were Jews. We just called them Syrians and couldn't quite understand who they were. And indeed, with the usual uh, cruelty of uh, kids, particularly when they're on group, there was a certain amount of raillery against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine that they did not fit in. Yeah. Uh, I tabled a moment ago a reference to Israel, but I'm very eager to get to it. You're deeply involved in analyzing their special situation. Let's take as our opening, uh, because it gets us directly into the politics of Israel's relation, not only to the world around it, but to the United States. Let's uh, take as our point of immediate reference the coming visit, if it is indeed going to be fulfilled, of Netanyahu to give a speech before Congress. 
Well, with all due deference to the major debate that's emerged over this, I don't see it as very important. I think that in later March, there are three important dates which ah. are going to be far more important. In One would be the election, I suppose. One is the election in Israel. The second is the Palestinian Authority planning to go to the United Nations. Mm-hmm. And the third is the ending of the P5 plus 1 negotiations with Iran, all of which are taking place in about two weeks yes. in late March. I think if you look at this closely, you'll see a, a whole range of reasons why there's going to be tensions between the U.S. and Israeli governments, and perhaps severe tensions. Um, you know, anyway, the, the, the speech will not be a very important Well, the P5 will probably, as is predicted, end in an agreement which gives them, um, which they say, well, we're not going to build any nuclear weapons right now, but gives them uh, uh, the right to go on accumulating the necessary technology and the necessary material so they can do it in rather short order if they choose. Right, and the Israelis are dead set against this. They should be. And uh, on another topic, the... Uh, the Europeans are planning a, the French in particular, uh, have a draft for the Security Council that the U.S. government might accept with some modifications that will require the Israelis to leave the West Bank in a few years. So I think uh, there's a prospect of tensions between Israel and uh, the United States that is um, much greater than we've seen in the past. I have been surprised over the last six years how limited the tensions between the Obama administration and the Netanyahu government have been. Uh, it seemed to me it was going to crash pretty quickly, and it hasn't. Uh, and indeed, I think it has gone quite well. I'm not someone who has a problem with tensions between the Israeli and American governments. I rather like tensions, because when there are no tensions, one finds that the Israeli government makes friendly gestures to Washington, which come back to, um, to haunt it. For example... Good relations in the latter George W. Bush years meant that the Israelis gave up the so-called Philadelphia Corridor. In other words, the um, area between Gaza and Egypt. In other words, they lost control over the uh, tunnels that were being buried mm-hmm. and uh, the arms that came in. It was a foolish gesture that was done for Condoleezza Rice. Much better had there been tensions and the Israelis not given this up and the uh, arms not gone to Hamas and not had now several wars. So I'm fine with a certain low level of tensions between these governments. But I worry that in a month or so, these tensions might uh, bubble up and the um, differences between these two governments will finally come to a head. Do you have a prediction about the outcome of the election? In Israel, I think Likud party will will win. I think Netanyahu will be prime minister again. He's widely disliked and resented, but uh, he has done a competent job, and he is focused on Iran in a way that his main contender, uh, Isaac Herzog, is not. He's focused on uh, consumer prices and getting along with Washington. Uh, That's not really the important in, in the minds of many Israelis, it's not ultimately the most important thing. I get the impression that at times Obama, <clears throat> and thus those who are, uh, uh, are re- responsive to him or depend upon his uh, goodwill, uh, do go out of their way to kind of break normal 
rules of politeness when dealing with the Israelis. I, can, I certainly remember that strange occasion when Netanyahu and his group came to the White House and they had to enter through a, the, an unusual side door and they were not given lunch. <laughs> that right, just right. seemed to be a willful the uh, insult. The went off to dinner with his family and the Israelis were left cooling their heels. You know what? I'm fine with that. I'm really quite fine with that. I, I'm glad to see these kind of tensions. I just don't want them to grow to be larger. I'm quite fine to have these tensions over the silly speech. I just don't want them to grow and become really serious over uh, the important things like Iranian nuclear development. Well, how do you think that can be handled and will be handled? Well, it appears that the U.S. government... That, that well, it's clear what we're going to do. We will Israel do. It appears that Obama's main foreign policy objective is to bring the Iranians in from the cold. Yeah. And he is dead set on achieving that. And By giving them the right to go ahead and uh, arm themselves in a nuclear way uh, when they thought that, when they come to think that the situation requires it. And not just the nuclear. There are now ballistic yes. missiles. And not just that. The Iranians, as of last month, January, have now control of four Arab capitals. Beirut, Damascus, yeah. Baghdad, and now Sana'a in Yemen. You were once on the policy planning staff of the State Department, just for a year or so, I think. Was it? Yeah, good memory, yeah. What, um, if you were there today, what would you be saying? <laughs> I'd be saying that this is crazy. We have to... Uh, we're, we're fighting ISIS, which is horrific, but not that big a threat. And we're working with Iran, which is horrific and that big a threat. It's crazy. We are working with our enemy in order to fulfill this Obama uh, dream of uh, creating good relations with Iran. Well, let's get directly to that then. Let's get to Washington and to the Oval Office and to the responsive independent State Department for that matter. What in the world is our Middle Eastern policy and why? And how much does it have to do with the odd history of the man who is our unusual president? The American policy boils down to making nice to our opponents and being tough with our friends. Yeah. Uh, and I, I am the person who, who most has researched Obama's childhood and found conclusively that he was born and raised a Muslim. I accept that he converted to Christianity. I do not say he's a Muslim now, but I am dead firm on his being, as having been a Muslim, and his lying about his childhood. So as you say, he's a strange uh, person, and, but a strange background, and it's elusive and mysterious, and there are lots of loose ends there. Uh, that said, I do not see that his policies are particularly influenced by his Muslim background. I think he has the policies of a cookie-cutter leftist uh, American. Uh, he is not aberrant. He, his views are those of others with... His views on the Middle East and Islam are similar to those of others who have a, a, an outlook such as his. Hmm. Um, what's the evidence of his having been born and reared a Muslim? Well, I would refer you to an article I wrote in 2012, and it's on my website in September 2012 on Obama's Muslim childhood, where I document it in great detail. There's a lot of detail. But yeah. in broad scope, uh, his middle name is an exclusively Islamic name. Yeah, of course it is, Hussein. Yeah. His 
father is a Muslim and the Islamic religion passes through the father. His stepfather in Indonesia was a Muslim who took him to the mosque. He was recorded in the public school in Indonesia as having a, as being a Muslim. Yeah. He studied the uh, in a Quranic class. He went to Quran. He went to the class of your religion. If you only went to Quranic class, if you were a Muslim, he was taught the Adhan, the call to prayer. He acknowledges that. He's told us that he thinks that's as beautiful a sound as anything. Exactly. In, in music. His half-sister uh, talks about the the family having been Muslim. Yeah. His uh, schoolmates talk about his having worn Muslim clothes and gone to Muslim classes and being a Muslim, and on and on and on. And then if you look, not at the past, but at the present, you look at how he talks about the Holy Quran, how he, how he presents Islam in an Islamic, piously Islamic uh, context and, and not Christianity. As he tells us after some of the ISIS executions uh, that, well, uh, we ought to get off our high horse. We were once the Crusaders. Right. Uh, exactly. It is, it, it's the sort of thing that you hear from a, a Muslim apologist. Uh, he once on television talked about his Muslim faith and corrected himself, or actually was corrected by his interviewer. Mm. Uh, on and on and on. There is a great deal of evidence to support this. And and even the person who converted him, the Reverend Wright, is a little uh, like, opaque about the nature of this conversion. He's not my idea of a typical or totally authentic no, Christian no, no. pastor. Uh, the Reverend Wright was himself a Muslim, nation of Islam. All sorts of things going on there. Yeah, There's so much that you... Uh, adverted to that we could go on talking about for the rest of the evening, but I've only got about uh, six more minutes and you probably need the rest. Uh, let me come at last uh, to uh, people you made reference to a moment ago, the left-leaning uh, intelligentsia, or more particularly, the members of your disciplinary guild, that is, students of Middle Eastern affairs, one way or another, historically, sociologically, politically, as we find them, most typically, in research institutes. You run a fine research institute, but it's not based at Harvard or the University of Chicago or at Columbia University. It's based privately on private money uh, in Philadelphia. What about, um, uh, I've talked with Martin Kaplan on this, uh, as I've, of course you have as well. Martin Kramer. A Kramer, I'm sorry. Um, and uh, uh, what's the situation? Well, much of the serious work being done in the Middle East uh, on, on contemporary issues is done outside the university. Yeah. Uh, I would refer you to the titles of books, the titles of talks that are being done at the university, which tend to have very little relevance to the kind of concerns the people making foreign policy uh, need to need to know. Uh, they tend to be hostile to the United States and its allies. They tend to uh, look at popular culture. Uh, tend to come up with rather strange theories. Uh, have odd economic notions. Uh, just doesn't. You know, if, if you're a senator, this has no meaning to you. And we who are outside the university are attending, you know, point, are attentive to these concerns. And uh, research institutes are producing, outside the university, uh, the bulk of the serious studies that uh, are usable 
What's going on in the university centers? Well, as I say, this uh, anti-American bias, uh, this predilection for theory, to find some original theory. Uh, Anti-Israeli bias, quite directly, too, usually. Well, that fits into the anti-American, because I said anti-American and the allies of the United States. Yeah, right. And Israel especially, but it also extends, say, to other governments that have good relations with the United States. It also extends to other people. One thing they're almost universally uh, angry about is you. Yeah, I'm not uh, very popular. Um, in part because I found it, because of my views, in part because I founded Campus Watch. In the aftermath of Martin Kramer's book, Ivory Tower on Sand, which came out in 2001, right. a year later I started Campus Watch. And what we do at Campus Watch is say, you know, athletes are assessed, and so are politicians and actors. Why not professors? You know, what, what is so sacrosanct about professors that no one can judge them? And the professors responded with great annoyance. But we've been doing it now for 12 years, and uh, they have come to terms with it, I think. They're still highly annoyed. But we, we give assessments. Who's doing a good job? Who's not going, doing a good job? Again, you've given me uh, a cue to yet another question. Uh, uh, one well-known student of the Middle East who indeed runs such a center, now at Columbia University, used to run it at, the, used to be in the one at the University of Chicago, is known to both you and to the president. He supposedly was a rather close friend of the president's. I speak, of course, of Rashid Khalidi. Uh, what do you make of his thought and of his influence? Rashid Khalidi is, is just a cookie-cutter Middle East specialist with all the usual views, uh, anti-American, anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian, pro-despot. Uh, he just, you know, that's, that's the norm for the, for the profession, and he has gone from strength to strength. He's now the Edward Said professor of something or other yes. at Columbia University. But this is, this is typical. I mean, he's a bit more prominent than others, but there are many others of his ilk. He's not the most extreme. He's not the most... Uh, I would say his, he's got a colleague at Columbia called Joseph Massad, who is perhaps the most extreme uh, and the most wild-eyed of, of the prominent Middle East specialists. But there are, I would say there are about 5% of the Middle East specialists, people with PhDs in, in, in topics Middle Eastern, history, politics, economics, literature, sociology, and so forth. About 5% are doing a good job. 95% are not. It's a, it's a field in crisis. Last question. Um, and with my advanced thanks for uh, all the time you spent with us tonight and for the very interesting commentary you've offered. But this simple, basic, and impossible question. Look forward, say, to the middle of this century. That's not too far away, but far enough away that we can't be sure of anything. Uh, what will our situation be as regards the issues we are, we've been discussing tonight? Well, this is a terrible moment for, for Muslims and for the Middle East. Not everything is connected to Islam. For example, water. Water problems in the Middle East are, are becoming extraordinarily uh, dangerous. Uh, it's a terrible moment. And I have hope that in the midst of these problems, there are wisps of solutions, and that, say, 35 years hence, there will be, there will be reason to be optimistic that things will improve. 
right now, things are bad and getting worse. Israel, in the year 2050. Well, the only really significant danger to Israel is Iranian or other nuclear weapons. And on the assumption that that will be dealt with, I think Israel will flourish. If that's not taken care of, then Israel's in jeopardy. Uh, that would be, de- would be dealt with might be a reference to the threatened and, if necessary, promised uh, assault upon uh, the nuclear facilities in Iran. Exactly. I, I think that's the only way to stop, to be sure, to stop the Iranians is through force. Uh, sanctions and other economic measures are useful, but they do not do the job in of themselves. Cannot could, be relied on to do the job. Could that ignite a regional war or an even more widespread war than that? No, I don't think so. I think, uh, remember, the Israelis have twice attacked nuclear installations. Yes. In Iraq in 1981 and Syria in 2007. And in both cases, the governments just accepted it. I'm not sure the Iranians will do the same, but I have no reason to think it would lead to a regional war. And what are your plans for right now in the middle of next century? For the middle of next century? Well, of this know. century, rather. Uh, of this century, right. Um, I will be fairly elderly at that point. I don't know what I'll be doing. I just visited Bernard Lewis, who is turning yes. 99, who is the doyen Wonderful. of Middle East historians, uh, who is, uh, <laughs> you know... Um, and his, his best-known book... Uh, is directly along the lines that we've been discussing. I think it's titled, What's Went Wrong, isn't it? Yes, yes, What Went Wrong, yeah, exactly. So, much to be done. I appreciate the chance to chat with you. It's been wonderful, a great pleasure uh, getting together with you again. Uh, if you come to Chicago, do let me know, and we can do a good deal more. Thanks. All right, best wishes, and thanks Thank you. again. Thank you.